Welcome to Dungeon Designers Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 9 of DDG Pod, where we welcome to the guild hall a designer who has proven that great games can come in small packages. Those of you who have listened to previous episodes know that at DDG Pod, we invite a creator to discuss the design and development of usually no more than a single game. On occasion, we have had instances where it would make sense to cover multiple games at once, if they are closely related enough. Individual games are not the sole focus of our show, and when appropriate, we believe topics could include a specific setting, or an entire system that could span several games without major variation. This episode of DDG Pod, in order to prove the concept of the latter, we have decided to start small. In fact, today's guest thoroughly describes multiple drive-through RPG best-selling games in what is our tiniest episode yet. So, without further ado, let's get on to our main event. Today on Dungeon Designers Guild, we have encountered the ruler of the tiniest empire in all of tabletop role-playing, designer of several best-selling RPGs, and the mastermind behind the Gallant Night Games Cooperative, Alan Barr. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. And which microverse are you calling in from? Uh, I'm calling in from North Dakota, which is a microverse in terms of population. So, hey. <laughs> Is it the lowest populated state in the lower 48? I'm pretty sure Wyoming is, but we're not far. Now I'm going to have to check, though, because now I'm curious. I think you're right. I think it is Wyoming. Yeah, it's Wyoming, but we're in, like, the bottom five. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's still a nice place. Yeah, I like it. Is that where you hail from originally? Close to. I grew up in Bismarck, North Dakota. I don't live quite near there, but it's close enough. But yeah, so I'm kind of a group Midwestern, lived in the mountain states for a while in Utah and back Midwest. Excellent. I can appreciate that, being originally from the Midwest myself as well. So uh, when and where did you start gaming? In Bismarck when I was uh, about 12. Okay. Uh, what introduced you to the hobby? Mm, that was at scout camp. Some older kids were playing. Oh, let's see. That would have been, what, I was 12, so 2000. So that would have been, you know, third edition D&D just came out. Because I, I remember the books, and they were third edition looking books, so they must have been third edition. And they were playing, and I asked to join. And I played a half-elf druid. That was my first character. Aramil Nightbreeze. I remember his name. And I got hooked. I got the bug. And, you know, saved my babysitting and lawnmowing money and bought all the core books. They were on 3.5 launch and never looked back. Okay. Were you a fan of fantasy prior to that? Yeah, I was a big reader. I would scavenge the local, small, but local library. For any books I could get that were fantasy, Sword of Shannara, Lord of the Rings, Wheel of Time, you name it, fantasy-wise, I probably read it. Okay, so you knew the genre pretty well, but when you first encountered D&D at Scout Camp, were you familiar with the game or the concept already, or was that something new to you? I was tangentially familiar that something called Dungeons & Dragons existed. I had experienced it in board game form, I'm pretty sure, but you know, I was like eight, and I didn't really remember or make the connection. 
So it was uh, it wasn't until really then that I got into it. But I had read some of the Arias Alator Forgotten Realms novels. So I was familiar with some of the concepts and conceits of the genre. Okay, so having read Forgotten Realms, did it feel very familiar then to you? It didn't feel difficult to make the leap, no. Uh, it felt very natural. Okay, and out of curiosity, did you stick with scouting? Are you an Eagle Scout? I am, I did. I got all the way to the end. I even think I have my uh, silver palm. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't get any palms, but uh, I, I did get my eagle. So, so yeah, that's that's great. I think you're the first uh, eagle scout we've had on the show, other than myself, of course, who's oh, on every episode. Hey. <laughs> at least you're the first one who's mentioned being an eagle, I guess. Other guests could have been, but yeah, that's awesome. So you encountered D&D at scout camp and saved up to buy the books when you got home. Were you then the one who had to introduce it to your friends, or were you able to find other players? I introduced it to my friends. I didn't really get a chance to do a lot of it until college. I played with my siblings here and there with friends at school, but it never stuck. Just timing and hard to get around without a car in you know rural country area. And it wasn't until I got to college, and my roommate was a D&D player. And that's when it really took off. Excellent. So you went to college. Fortunately, your roommate was also a D&D player. Did you two yep. also then start branching out into other games? In college, we got into the White Wolf Vampire the Requiem a couple years in. And that was really the first big branch out. It was followed by Mutants and Masterminds. And after that, it was just a super slippery slope for me. Nice. Okay. So you started dabbling in quite a few games after that? I mean, yeah. At this point, I have to have a spreadsheet to keep track of all the physical RPGs I own. I have an entire basement room that's just bookcases on the wall. And it's something like over 3,000 physical books at this point. Jeez. Um, and I've played most of them. Wow. Okay. You know, a lot of that's expansions, right? Savage Worlds, you play Savage Worlds, you might have two shelves of expansions, but it's still Savage Worlds. Same with, you know, D&D, right? So are you a, an avid Savage Worlds player then? I was much more than I am now, and that's just mostly interests and in the type of game that I played have shifted, and I still back most of their Kickstarters, and I have most of their books. I just, you know, my group composition has changed from the people who played Savage Worlds to other games, and so we kind of moved with it, and we I keep saying I need to get back to it, but I just haven't done it. There's a lot about it to love, and uh, we played it a lot for a long time, and you know, you know how it is if you play different games. You play one for a while. We did a couple years of Savage Worlds, different campaigns, and then we switched it up, and we moved into something else, and we kind of did a couple years of that, and so you just kind of go through the rotation. Yeah, that's great that you had a group who was willing to cycle through different games. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people have trouble finding a group that wants to venture past a, a single game. Right. Anyway, so you've played an enormous amount of games, which is an enviable feat. When did you decide to start designing games? That would have been, oh, probably 2008, maybe a little earlier than that. It would have had to have been earlier than that, actually. It was the heyday of the Wizards of the Coast forums, and they ran all these, like, design contests. If you ever, for people who don't know, forums were like Discord, but it wasn't real time, and you couldn't chat with people, which is like writing letters in Discord all day long on a website page. I, I never had to explain stuff like that until I had explained something to my sister the other day, and I was like, oh, I got old. It's a terrible feeling to realize you're old. <laughs> it, was, it was driven home. We were watching something on TV. Oh, we were watching WandaVision, and Wanda is a year younger than me. And I was like, oh, there are TV characters who are adults who are younger than me now. This is a weird feeling. And that, that, that ruined my perception of my age. 
But yeah, so I was doing these design competitions on the forums. They would host, you know, make the most broken character or design a new prestige class or adventure kind of fan contests. I did a lot of those and I sucked royally. I mean, I was so bad, but I kept submitting and I kept submitting. And eventually somebody took pity on me, started giving me pointers on my submissions. And it sort of just kind of snowballed from there until about 2015, 2016, when a friend of mine, Howard Taylor, who writes the Schlock Mercenary webcomic, wanted to do an RPG based on Schlock Mercenary. And he knew I was interested in game design and I had been playing around with it and dinking around with it. And he asked me to give him a pitch and I gave him a pitch and he liked it. And he asked me to design the whole game. And I did. Obviously, with the help of Stan, uh, Howard and Sandra Taylor, who run Schlock Mercenary. And the Kickstarter did enormously well. It was 350000 This was prior to the days of million-dollar Kickstarters. You know, we, At the time, we were in the top five funded Kickstarters of all time for RPGs. And I got the bug, and I went off and started Gallant that same year. I mean, we may have million-dollar Kickstarters today, but I think 350000 is something you're proud of no matter what you're doing on Kickstarter. But so that game would have been Planet Mercenary? Uh, Planet Mercenary, yeah. I think it was like 340 technically. I might have overinflated a little bit at the end there. Sorry. But, oh, well. <laughs> I mean, what was your goal? I want to say it was 30 or 40,000. Oh, wow. Well, okay. I, I don't even know anymore. It's, I haven't looked at that Kickstarter page in six years. <laughs> well, either way, eight times your goal or whatever, that's a tremendous success. So you went ahead and you designed Planet Mercenary with Howard and Sandra. And then yeah. you said that yep. later that year, you went ahead and started Gallant Knight, which you're obviously still running. And so what was your first venture then with Gallant Knight? It was Tiny Frontiers, which was a minimalist science fiction kind of space opera themed role-playing game. Okay. And what was the overall goal with Tiny Frontiers? What inspired you to design that game specifically? I had backed the original Tiny Dungeon Kickstarter from Smoking Salamander Games, and I really loved it. And science fiction is one of my favorite genres to play in, and they weren't going to do one. And so I reached out and said, I would like to license your rules. I would like to do this. And they said, that sounds great. Let's do it. And then we did sort of all the paperwork, and I ran a Kickstarter. Oh, so Tiny Dungeons was a different publisher? The first iteration of Tiny Dungeon was produced by Smoking Salamander Games. We did Tiny Frontiers, and then we did Tiny Frontiers, Mechas, and Monsters. And, you know, I was talking to them and they said, we're not going to do any more with this. They're like, we're done. We were happy with our one game book. And I was like, well, I love Tiny Dungeon. I would like to keep doing stuff. So can I just buy the game all the wholesale, buy all the rights, buy the, you know, ownership? And they said, yes. And so we did. And that's where we've kind of run from there. We've since re-released Tiny Dungeon with a new edition. And, you know, the game has evolved over that time. So it had definitely has its roots in the Smoking Salamander game. But I think if you picked up both, you could see the through lines, but you would definitely see the differences. Okay. So are Smoking Salamander? still making games or did that all kind of get folded into gallant night they only ever released the initial tiny dungeon okay so they put out the original and then as you mentioned you did a second edition under gallant night correct yeah okay and i admittedly have my history a little wrong here i was under the impression that tiny frontiers predated tiny dungeons but i guess it only predated tiny dungeons 2e and the original tiny dungeons doesn't show up in the gallant night catalog because it's smoky and salamander so I guess my next question for you would be then, what was it that spoke to you about that original Tiny Dungeons game that made you want to work with it? Yeah, it was easy to read. It was easy to teach. It was small. It hit all the buttons I wanted to hit, but the rules were light enough. They got out of the way so I could tell the story I wanted to tell without having to work at adjusting or changing things on the fly. 
it was a framework game. And for me, it was the first framework game where all the pieces were in the right places. It was the first framework game where I felt like all the pieces I wanted were in the right place to make it the framework that worked for me. Sure. So you had the Tiny Dungeons framework to build off of. And what sort of changes then did you make when adapting it to Tiny Frontiers? Sure. So a lot of it was reasonable. We added new heritages the players' species or cultures. We had we changed those up. We added starship rules. The very first Tiny Frontiers had mech rules in it. The later edition of Tiny Frontiers does not. Those got moved to mechas and monsters. We added we kind of random tables for generating planets, science fiction style obstacles and events, things like that. And we added micro settings, which are tiny six to eight page settings that are designed to be kind of overviews and launching pads for game masters so they can jump into a campaign with a little, it's still up to prep and make it their own, but they have a kind of a starting point to inspire their ideas. Almost like a seed for a campaign. Yeah, yeah, kind of. A little more detailed than just like a paragraph or something you would think of as like an adventure seed. Because they're, you know, there's six to seven pages sometimes more. And their work is to kind of create a platform for you to build from. Okay. And that was a concept original to Tiny Frontiers. We didn't see that in the original Tiny Dungeons. Correct. Yeah. The micro settings were new and they've carried through to all our tiny games. Right. So you did take this system that you had developed from Tiny Dungeons and inevitably adapted into a lot of different genres. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the directions you went with it after Tiny Frontiers? Well, we did Tiny Frontiers, and then we followed up with Mechas and Monsters, which is a kaiju and mecha role-playing game. You can play as the kaiju or the giant robots. And then we did a new edition of Tiny Dungeon, followed by Tiny Wastelands, which is post-apocalyptic, Tiny Supers, which is superheroes, and Tiny Cthulhu is fulfilling the Kickstarter backers right now. And along the way, we've also done smaller games like Tiny Living Dead, Tiny Pirates, Tiny Gunslingers, and we've also licensed Tiny D6 out to other companies to create their own material. Excellent. Obviously, you've seen a lot of success with the various tiny titles. The one that I'm most familiar with would be Tiny Frontiers, and I guess it's the revised edition now that I look at it, the 2018 version that you put out of the game. And so it would appear the overall goal for the system is to ensure that there's a game for every genre possibly imaginable. Is that the actual plan? It's not the explicit goal, but it is the direction it's trended, yeah. I think so. And part of that to me is... Yeah, I can make it all one big book with all the generic rules and the supporting genre rules, but that doesn't give the genre time to breathe, right? You want more than a half dozen pieces of art for this genre. You want to give it the space to do the justice it's worth. I would agree with that. I think you're going about it the right way. So when you first set out to adapt Tiny Dungeons into sci-fi with Tiny Frontiers, did you already have sort of the inkling that you'd be going in other directions after that? Or did those ideas occur to you only after you had published Tiny Frontiers? It wasn't intentional, and it sort of just happened. I I mean, there was no master plan at the time. There is now. But at the time, I was working a day job. I was doing Gallant on the side, and it kind of just kept happening and happening. And then all of a sudden, there was a trend and a plan, and a thing was happening. Okay, excellent. And could you describe for us the tiny mechanics that connect all of those games together? Absolutely, yeah. So the base mechanic is rolling two six-sided dice. If either dice results in a five or a six, you're successful. You don't count multiples, you don't add them together. It's just as long as one dice is a five or six, you did it. Good job. If you have advantage, you roll three. If you have disadvantage, you roll one. And disadvantage cancels advantage. And that's it. That's the whole game. That's every roll in the game is made that way. 
and you just kind of go from there. I like that disadvantage supersedes advantage instead of leveling it out into a regular role. Is that something that you carried over from the original Tiny Dungeon? Yes, it did. But we've kept it because the rationale behind it makes a lot of sense. And we actually removed it in our very initial edition of Tiny Frontiers, and I eventually added it back in. So why did you decide to remove it? You know, we play tested and I said it wasn't working and I took it out. And the more we play tested stuff, eventually the more it reappeared later down the road. The mechanical advantage is that you need something that allows the GM to set a baseline difficulty, right? If they just canceled and defaulted to 2d6, nothing would ever be hard because as long as you had advantage, you would always roll 2d6. So Providing disadvantage is a chance to override and stay as disadvantage gives the GM a baseline of this is going to be hard no matter what. And there's just no way around it. So I guess with the first edition of Tiny Frontiers, it would have balanced out. And it would have, if you had a disadvantage and an advantage, you just would have rolled two and called it a day. Is that how that worked? That's how it worked at the time. Yep. Okay. And it works that way in a lot of other games. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that since there is some obvious logic to factors balancing out. But would you say that Tiny D6 necessitated that method? Yeah. Because it's a minimalist game, there wasn't enough ways for the GM to make things hard. Okay. That makes sense. So this is an example of something you actually left out and decided to add back in. Is there anything from Tiny Dungeons that you did leave behind as you carried on? We tweaked some verbiage. We put the book through a professional editor. We got all new art, you know, things like that. The core system has remained relatively the same. Most of the traits have been cleaned up or slightly changed or whatever as time has gone on. But if you read the first one and you read the new one, you would see a lot of similarities in the base mechanics. Okay. So in Tiny Frontiers, you have heritages for a race or species system. Is that something that was new for Tiny Frontiers or did that exist in Tiny Dungeons and you just came up with new ones for the sci-fi setting? We had all new heritages. In the Tiny Dungeon, they were called races. We changed the term to heritage. We felt it was more elegant and it achieved what we wanted in the game better. Right. And with Tiny Frontiers, it's really just alien species. So heritage does sound better than the alternatives. Okay. So as we discussed, in every version, it's the same rules. You are rolling either 1, 2, or 3 D6 based on whether advantages or disadvantages right. are present. And could we talk a little bit about how your heritage might factor into those rolls to get you advantage or disadvantage? So... The way the game works is you pick your archetype or heritage, depending on the genre, right? So in the, we'll use the example of Tiny Frontiers. Let's say I pick the hologram archetype. So that means I am a hologram. And what happens is that gives me a trait. It's called an archetype or heritage trait. And generally a trait tells you what you get advantage on. So for example, in the general trait section, there's a trait called perceptive. And like you would expect, it gives you advantage on roles made to notice things, perceive things, or use your senses to gather data. And so most advantage comes from traits, right? Things like acrobatics, perceptive, educated, they, they kind of do what you would expect. And most disadvantage is assigned by the GM or a game effect. So for example, the berserker trait requires you to suffer disadvantage on your attack, but you get to do one extra damage. Okay, and that one extra damage can actually make a difference, although it may not sound like much. Would you be able to go into a little bit about the damage mechanics in the game? Yeah, so weapons do a static amount of damage, generally one. In later iterations of Tiny D6, we've actually made some adjustments to that. Light weapons do one damage, heavy weapons do two, but you can only attack with a heavy weapon once a turn. So kind of the baseline damage for a given turn of attacks is one to two damage. 
damage, depending on how you attack. I mean, that's static. There's no rolling for damage. And that decision is maintained for twofold reasons. One, as a game designer, I'm a big proponent of cutting out as many rolls as possible when you're playing the game. Dice are great for randomizing effects and situations, but they also slow down the game because you have to stop to interpret the outcome. So I am a firm believer that you should reduce rolls as much as possible, especially where they're not necessary. And damage rolls are not necessary. Now that I've said that, somebody on the internet is going to yell at me about you know, well, yours game of yours has damage rolls, and that's true, but I make a lot of different games. <laughs> to you, I say, sorry, you suck it. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so, okay, so um, you, you do make you do make a lot of different games, that's true. But, uh, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with static damage. I personally don't like it when people try to shoehorn it in. Like, I, I don't like static damage in D&D, but I, I just feel the system is built for... Well, and, of and you're 100%, 100% right. Systems are built to do certain things. And in Tiny D6, the goal is to reduce rolling as much as possible to get it out of the way, right? In D&D, that's not the goal of the game. And so rolling damage has a different perspective. It has a different mechanical application. And that application is not equally balanced across all styles of game design. Absolutely. I definitely see rationale there. So damage is static to keep combat simple. And because you are only doing one or two damage at most, no characters have a lot of hit points. Uh, something that does make combat a little more complicated, though, is that, at least in Tiny Frontiers, there are additional moves you can take in combat. For instance, I believe if you are focusing, you skip a turn, but then gain advantage on your attack next turn. Can you tell us a little bit about what sort of options you gave players for different moves during combat? Yeah. So we use what I kind of in-house, it doesn't have an official name, but in-house I call it the two-action system. And basically on your turn you get two actions. And part of my frustration with role-playing games is when people get bogged down with analysis paralysis, right? There's too many factors to make an effective decision. And so one of the things Tiny does is it turns combat into discrete moments in time where you make an action off kind of a pick list of options. So your options are move, attack, Evade, which gives you a defensive bonus if you're attacked until the start of your next turn. You get a chance to roll to get out of the way, which is normally not a thing that happens. If you get hit, you just get hit. You can focus, which makes you lose an action, not a turn, and your next roll gains a bonus. It succeeds on a four, five, or six. Then there's, in some games, there's things like take cover, covering fire, and we add new actions based on the genre when appropriate and applicable. But we kind of have those core actions. Okay, so things like evade and focus show up in pretty much all of the games? Evade, focus, move, attack, and you like use a skill or make a test show up in all the games. Those are core five are in every game. Okay, so that handles players during melee combat, and I guess that would cover ranged combat as well. But when it comes to magical powers and the like, how do you keep the magic system and powers systems simple yet still effective sure so it comes back to the concept of pick lists right so there are some traits that are either magical or not so for example the beast speaker trait that lets you communicate with animals and that can be a magical communication akin to a druid right or it can be just somebody who's really good and comfortable with animals the animal whisper archetype and it can be a non-magical trait that's kind of up to the player to decide when they make their character and then there's some traits like a scroll reader or spell touched that are inherently magical and so spell touched is sort of your, I have magic in my blood and I can do things. And it basically lets you do kind of standard cantrip or basic first or second level spell effects. And it gives you a small pick list. And it also says the GM should just ask you to make a test if you do something they feel is appropriate and plausible. So like, you're never going to be able to resurrect somebody, but you know, making a sound so the guards look the other way and you can make your escape out of the room, that's totally doable with spell touched. You just make a test. Scroll reader is the big flashy attempts. You have to read a scroll and they're used once and they're gone. Uh, but you read the scroll and the magic effect happens. And that's where your fireballs and your resurrections and your somebody in a meteor storm kind of effects are. 
Do you delineate those effects and spells in the text itself, or is that up to the GM and players to come up with? The two traits are obviously delineated. The spell test effects are in the book, and the scrolls are kind of up to the GM to create. We also have some like magic item aids and supplements we've released that allow people to kind of add more detail or use them as building points for their own stuff. Okay, but the core rule books lack the sort of lengthy spell lists and explanations that we see in D&D and other games? No, yeah, we they don't have that. It's designed to be flexible and player-driven. It's supposed to be minimalist, right? And that means when we write it and we look at the text, we decide, does this need to be in the book or is this something we can trust people to come up with on their own? Like, falling damage is an example I come back to a lot when I talk about Tiny D6. There are no rules for falling damage. It is so situational, it's not worth the words or the page count to talk about it. <laughs> so it's not in the book, right? If you fall, your GM will tell you to make a save test, and then he'll just assign you damage, right? That's that's it. Okay. And for your tiny supers variants, are the superpowers handled the same way that magic is handled? No, the superpowers are a lot more concrete-ish. We actually introduced a new type of trait called power trait, and they level up as you pick them repeatedly. So if you pick Super Strength three times, you would have Super Strength Tier 3, which provides you a whole host of benefits. But if you only pick it once, you'd have Super Strength Tier 1, which is different. And they provide you more concrete benefits, but they're also designed to be kind of re-themable and flexible. A good example is the Blast Power. You can take the Blast Power and it gives you a special kind of ranged attack you can do. But what form that takes? Is it like a Firebolt? Is it you just shooting an arrow a la like Hawkeye or Green Arrow? That's up to you. How the effect is delivered is your choice, but the effect is mechanically the same. Okay. As far as choices that players have with their characters, we have talked a little bit about those, but could you lay out for us the steps of the actual character creation process real quick? Yeah. So you pick your heritage and or archetype, and then you pick three traits off whatever lists are available, depending on the genre, be they power traits, regular traits, or something else. You assign your weapon proficiencies, you get two, and you assign your family trade. That's what you grew up doing, and you get advantage on stuff related to your family trade. And then you're done. That's it. The whole character fits on a 3 by 5 note card. Okay, so we have traits. Do we have any sort of ability scores or anything like that? Nope, just traits. Your traits define who you are. Think of them, if you were to tie it to another game, they would be almost akin to aspects and fate, but a little more mechanically defined. Okay, and are there any major variants in the character builds from genre to genre? The traits are generally the same. The difference comes into the archetypes a lot of the time. But almost all the tiny games are compatible without much effort. The real one is tiny supers because superpowers add a whole different power curve to a game. Okay, so traits pretty much stay the same throughout the games, uh, except for the super traits that needed scalability. And then as far as picking a heritage or an archetype, you do, again, at least in Tiny Frontiers, you have quite an extensive list of heritages to choose from. Could we explore those a little bit? Sure. What are some of the interesting heritages or archetypes players can find, not just in Tiny Frontiers, but throughout the other books as well. I'm assuming in Tiny Dungeons, the heritage options for players are largely what we've come to expect from other dungeon fantasy role-playing games. Is that accurate? To a degree, yeah. We add some things that are different. You know, there's bear people and you can play tree folk and things like that right out of the gate. But for the most part, it's going to be what you'd expect. Okay. And so what sort of decisions did you make when you were first developing Tiny Frontiers then, as far as the heritages are concerned? Well, heritages were designed to be generic enough to fit all the different micro settings, but recognizable as sort of sci-fi archetypes that you might be used to seeing. 
Okay, so obviously science fiction has some recognizable archetypes, but does not have the same level of established tropes as a fantasy setting. Right. So could you give us some examples of the archetypes that you did come up with? Uh, I know you had mentioned hologram earlier, for instance. Yep, there's a hologram heritage where you can play a hologram. There are gens, which are genetically engineered humanoids. You have autoborgs, which are akin to cyborgs or robots. You've got the standard kind of insect aliens, You've got the standard archetype of the conquering aliens. We hit the archetype of the uh, culturally intelligent aliens, cybernetically focused aliens. Lots of things like that designed to sort of hit all the buttons. Okay, excellent. And if I'm not mistaken, in Tiny Frontiers, we have heritages, but we don't have archetypes? Or am I wrong about that? Nope, just heritages. Correct. Okay. And other than some traits, your heritage also determines your hit points you mentioned. Is that right? Correct. Yep. Okay. Is there anything else that it factors into mechanically? Nope. It is just your starting hit points and one trait. And then when you're building the character, you pick two more traits on top of that, you said, right? Three. You'll roughly have four when you start. Oh, okay. And that's true pretty much throughout the rest of the games as well. Yep. That is the general scheme. Okay. And do all the games have either a heritage or an archetype? Or are there any games where they stack? Currently, no. There's nothing like that. They're all kind of general. They kind of take the place of each other. Okay. And then how would do players advance their characters in Tiny D6? Advancement is optional. There are two optional methods of advancement for increasing your character, but the game defaults to you don't advance. You start as a pretty solidly strong character, and you advance mostly through gm fiat if they can say get a bonus trade or here's a magic item but that's about it so generally speaking the investment rules are considered optional all right so heritages and archetypes in these games provide players with familiar character options based on the genre but you also bring in various recognizable worlds and subgenres in the form of your micro settings at least in tiny dungeons and tiny frontiers uh, do micro settings appear in all of your games all the big books definitely have them most smaller books have only one or two yep okay well in tiny frontiers you give quite a few there's about a dozen of them it looks like right i think there's close to 10 or 12 yeah providing a lot of different options for groups to play pretty much any kind of sci-fi game they're looking for. Correct. Okay. Could you go a little bit into how you develop the micro settings? So usually we just reach out to a freelancer whose work we like and we ask them to write it. That's it. And we kind of just give them free reign to do what they want. There's not an overarching process, generally speaking. We just kind of make sure they're not bumping up against each other in terms of like theme. But other than that, I mean, they're professional creatives. I tend to let them just be professionals and be creative and not get in their way. Nice. Yeah. And I did notice that, you know, there, there's a lengthy list of names in here. Did you develop any of the micro settings yourself or are they all by freelancers? I write one or two here and there, depending on the genre, but I do all the rules writing and I generally tend to feel folks are tired of hearing from me about that point. <laughs> uh, so I tend to let others do it. But I, I have, like, for example, in Tiny Supers, I wrote the Gallant Verse, which is actually a full campaign setting. And I oversaw a couple of freelancers who wrote parts of it. And in Tiny Cthulhu, I wrote a fictional cosmic horror deity pantheon, inspired by, but completely original. And in, in Mechas and Monsters and stuff, I've written some micro settings here and there. It just kind of depends. It depends on if we need to fill a space, if I'm feeling motivated about that topic after writing a bunch of rules about it, and kind of just where it all lands. Okay. When you reach out to these freelancers, do you give them any sort of template, you know, criteria that they have to meet with the settings? Is there anything, or is it just kind of up to whatever they... Yeah, I generally just give them a word count, and I kind of let it write... I want them to write it in their own voice. I feel 
as a publisher and creative and then as a consumer that overworking somebody's creative voice diminishes the quality of the work and people work best when they feel passionate and unfettered. And obviously, you know, I, we, we do edits and I have sometimes I have to rein somebody in, but generally speaking, I, t- I, I kind of encourage them to give it their own voice and their own spin and let it be their own thing inside our book. I think that makes it better. Sure. Okay. And so within those micro settings, is it really just a description of the world or do we have people giving sort of mechanics and things like that? Depends on the book and the game. Generally speaking, they don't need new mechanics. And it's usually like a world overview, a couple existing conflicts, maybe some big bads or plot hooks, adventure seeds, things like that. Okay. Excellent. Well, As we've been saying all along, it's a very simplified game system. So are there any mechanics or important details of the system that we have not yet covered? I don't think so. You know, I I would say instead of simplified, the term I often use is it's complex, but it's not complicated. To me, complexity gives you interesting choices to make, but it doesn't overwhelm you with details or resolution or the moving parts of the system. And that's always my goal. It should be easy to understand, but playing it at the table should feel complex in that you have interesting decisions to make at any given point mechanically, but never so many that it feels complicated and overwhelming. Awesome. Yeah, I think that's a great way to describe it and that that's a goal that you did achieve with these games. Can you give some examples for our listeners of where one might see that easy complexity in gameplay? Sure. So one of the best places to look at it is mechas and monsters. In mechas and monsters, we introduce what's called systems or evolutions. So if you're a kaiju, you start with a certain amount of evolutions, and those are kind of your kaiju powers, right? Everything from blue atomic breath to I shoot spines or I have little follower like parasite drones that feed me so I heal faster or whatever. And we only get two actions a turn. So every turn you're looking at what you can do and you're trying to decide how to assign your two available resources. Think of it as a resource management. And that works in Tiny Dungeon, right? I have two actions. Do I want to attack twice? Do I want to move an attack? Do I want to evade an attack? If I don't evade and somebody hits me, I'm just getting hit. Do I want to focus to make sure my attack hits? But I can still get hit. There's tactical choices that have to be made and the array of actions is complex enough that when you try to string them together, there's a lot of options, but they're never overwhelming. And generally speaking, there is not ever a wrong option. There might be a suboptimal or an optimal, but they're never inherently wrong. It's not just a bad move. I would agree. And that does show that your gameplay is complex without being complicated and gives players a lot of options with a lot of potential outcomes and doesn't railroad players into this is what your character does or this is what your character is supposed to do. Right. Which is the goal. Okay, so how did you go about playtesting Tiny Frontiers and the subsequent books? Obviously, Tiny Dungeons was already developed, but what did Gallant Knight do to test out the other games? At the start, I ran my own playtest groups because, you know, one-man company, part-time job. And so that was was the big solution. And then I had, you know, people who read it and gave me feedback. Now we actually maintain several groups of playtesters who help us with our project. They get drafts, they send feedback through Google Forms. I, I direct them to look at specific mechanical interactions if I'm concerned. I've written so much Tiny D6 stuff between our monthly Tiny Zine and all the books and small books and big books. I've written almost a thousand pages of Tiny D6 material at this point, I think, if you put it all together, probably more. Actually, it's probably closer to 2,000. And I have a pretty good eye at this point for rules when I write them on the page. So generally, I direct my playtesters to look at, hey, I wrote this. I'm a little concerned about how X interacts with Y. Make sure that comes up during your session a couple of times and give me your feedback. And they submit their feedback after they play it and we're done. That's Excellent. Do you have any examples of things that didn't quite work out the way you hoped they would? Any sort of failed experiments there? Probably, but I can't remember them off the top of my head. <laughs> okay. Somebody asked me that question once before and I was able to answer it. And now I can't remember what example I used. 
I'm, I'm sure right. are, I know there are rules we've cut based on playtester feedback. I know there are rules I've overridden playtesters on because I felt they were important, but I could not for the life of me at this exact moment tell you what they were. Okay. All right. Is there anything in Tiny 6 that exceeded your expectations? Anything that worked out particularly well? I think just the reception. You know, we built a really vibrant, engaged community. Uh, hundreds of people in our fan groups. Our Discord is very hopping, uh, you know, hundreds of posts a day. All the core books are best selling status on drive through you know tiny i mean tiny dungeons is mithril and we have three other platinum books which is just fantastic you know i think just the good community we have a great community they're very friendly uh, when we do charity drives they're very giving they're very supportive we don't ever have to deal with bad actors in any way that can count on one hand the number of times i've had to issue warnings in the four years we've been running our community everybody is generally you know it's been great a very positive experience in terms of community and reception i am consider myself very lucky that i've lucked into this sort of home for our work at Gallant. Absolutely. You have a very strong following of people that love the tiny D6 system and your other work at Gallant Knight, which, as you mentioned, is proved by all the accolades on Drive-Thru RPG. I mean, practically all your games are bestsellers there. Certainly more of them than not, wouldn't you say? Every game we release has achieved some level of bestseller status, even Copper, which Copper is, I think, 50 sales. But, you know, even Copper, I think less... Only 10% of stuff on drive throughs and copper, maybe a little more. Right. It's not every game that achieves even copper. Uh, it makes sense, though. You've created a system that's very approachable. And once you've learned one of the games, you pretty much know how to play the rest of them already, even if it's a brand new game. Yeah, which I think aids in the transition. Folks can easily, people who've ran it a lot can easily grab it and then mesh it together if they want or cull it for new ideas. And folks who haven't can easily jump in on a genre they're interested in. Absolutely. So does one of the books tend to be more popular than the others? I know you said Tiny Dungeons is Mithril. Would you say that that's the one that's most played? I do hear a lot about Tiny Supers as well. Tiny Dungeon is definitely our best-selling game by far. I mean, I think, you know, you find most people say that's true in the RPG industry, right? Fantasy is the big seller. After that, you know, Tiny Supers does really well. It won a Judge's Choice Bamsey Award in 2019. It's got several supplements. You know, Tiny Frontiers and Mechas and Monsters both also do really well. Okay. So obviously you have to play each of these games as you're developing them, but do you find yourself coming back to Tiny D6 a lot in your own gameplay? I run it less than I used to. Hazards of working on it all day, the last thing you want to do is kind of work on it more for fun. (laughs) But I do run it regularly, and I enjoy it still to this day. I mean, Tiny Supers hits the table a lot. I love running Tiny Supers. Yeah, I mean, obviously people are playing all of your games, but Tiny Supers in particular is one that I hear a lot about. It seems to come up often in my experience talking about Tiny D6 with people. Players seem to really enjoy that one in particular. My experience bears that out, and I've been really happy with how folks have uh, responded to it. Do you play it mostly in one shots, or have you played any long campaigns of of the Tiny games? Tiny Supers is my longest running Tiny campaign. I mean, the Gallantverse setting is based on a home game, kind of where it started as we were playtesting, and it expanded and expanded. Expanded. And I still run it. I have a semi-weekly group that meets to play, kind of double duty as a playtest group and just kind of a fun group. And we're all big Supers fans. So it doesn't actually feel like work, which is really great. Okay. So does that group then have a, a few different games that you cycle through? I mean, you can come back to the Supers campaign when you feel like it? No, we mostly just play Tiny Supers. Awesome. And you're running that, it sounds like, right? I am, yes. Do you end up running more often than playing? Absolutely. I definitely run more than I play. <laughs> 
have you gotten a chance to play like actually play as a player in the tiny games as all the tiny games as well or do you run so predominantly that you haven't actually experienced it from the, the player side in some cases the only time i've played tiny games has been either at conventions to fill a seat at a table for a demo or something and currently right now on our uh, gallon game streaming stuff uh, youtube facebook and twitch i'm a player in a tiny cthulhu campaign being run by a uh, Madi murdoch who is one of our frequent freelancers and she's running Tiny Cthulhu, and I'm a player. So this is the first time I've played a Tiny D6 campaign, and I'm really excited. Awesome. Tiny Cthulhu is the most recent incarnation of this system? Correct. Okay. And you said that that's being fulfilled through Kickstarter right now? Is that correct? Yes. We are just waiting for the printer to deliver the soft covers so we can start shipping it out. And that Tiny Cthulhu stream is called Yukon Dark or something along those lines, right? It's called Yukon Dark, and it's a late 1800s Gold Rush era Tiny Cthulhu game in Alaska. Cool. Is that one of the micro settings in the book? No, it's a whole new one uh, Madi came up with for the stream. Yeah, that's certainly an intriguing idea for a setting. Is the stream going well then? Yeah, we play on Thursdays. You know, it's at 9.30 Eastern and we play for about two hours. So if folks are interested, you can catch the episodes on our YouTube channel and you can kind of go from there. Okay, so as we mentioned, Tiny Cthulhu is the most recent version that you've released of the Tiny D6 system, and I hope we've managed to mention all the different versions throughout this conversation. I know we talked about a lot of them. So do you have any future plans for the Tiny D6 system? Oh yeah, there's more coming. Later this year, we're doing a Kickstarter for a revised edition of Mechas and Monsters, after which we'll dive into our next big genre book, which will be one of two. It'll either be a Tiny Cyberpunk book, or it'll be like a tiny gothic monster slash horror kind of book. Is it safe to say that both of those are inevitabilities for the tiny system? <laughs> they will happen. It's a matter of what order and when. Excellent. Glad to hear it. I think I can speak for the Tiny D6 fan community here in saying that we want both cyberpunk and gothic horror monsters. And I'm a huge fan of variations on themes, as I think I've mentioned. And I love to see different systems applied to different genres and settings. And then, of course, in your books, having the whole micro settings to just further drill into various subgenres. It's one of my favorite things about your system, and I think it's part of what makes Tiny D6 so much fun. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Absolutely. So other than Tiny D6, do we have any other upcoming projects from Gallant Knight that we should keep an eye out for? Well, we are partnering with Biohazard Games to launch a new edition of the classic Blue Planet role-playing game. It'll be on Kickstarter starting tomorrow. How long does the Kickstarter run for? Three days. Three days? 30. 30. I was going to say, like, wow, that's, you know... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's kind of ballsy so 30 days okay yeah uh, this this won't be out in, in the next 30 days then, so. you missed it and i'm sorry but hopefully we funded and you can buy it eventually and on that note where would you direct our listeners to pick up a copy of that game or any of the tiny d6 games or anything else by gallant knight drive through rpg or shop.gallantnightgames.com we also put all our major books into retail So you can ask your store to order it if it's out. It probably won't be out by the time you're listening to this. I don't think this podcast will take a year to come out. Well, hopefully not. But is that the usual time frame? Do you usually kickstart it for 30 days and then it's about a year before it's in the player's hands? The Blue Planet one's a pretty big project. It's two full books at like 300 pages. So it's going to take longer. The average tiny book, we kickstart it and we can turn it around and generally eight months to a year, depending on things like COVID. Yeah, unfortunately, a lot of things have depended on that recently. But so Blue Planet, is that through one of your publishing partners that you're distributing that? Nope, we've teamed up with Biohazard Games, who are the original creators of Blue Planet, to do a new edition. Okay. You've done that with a few other systems as well, right? Didn't you do something with the West End Game D6? Yep, we did. We released Zorro based on the original West End Games D6 system, and we partnered with West End Games to do a new edition. And we'll have more news on that coming 
coming later this year. You can check our website for that. Oh, so that one's not quite available yet? No, no, Zorro's out. There's more stuff coming. Oh, okay. Yeah, I was going to say, I thought I had seen Zorro on drive-thru. All right. Well, is there anything else, Tiny, we should go over? Anything you wish I would have asked about or anything that we forgot to mention at all? Uh, no, I think we hit all the all the excellent high points and none of the bad points. So that's a win for me. Okay. Are there any bad points? Uh, no, it's a perfect game. Okay. <laughs> like any game, it does not work for some people and it works for others. And, you know, I think I've given a pretty good overview of what you can expect. So I hope if you pick it up, you like it and you're not surprised. <laughs> yeah, I think we dug pretty thoroughly into, as you put it, a game that is not complicated, but does offer a lot of complexity. There's a lot of nuance in all of these games. Who would you say is your target audience? What players are out there who are looking for Tiny D6 but have yet to discover it? Uh, would you be able to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, there are two segments. The first segment is folks who are tired of really complicated games. And you find these with experienced gamers who've grown burnt out on D20 or similar, right? Tiny D6 is a great fit because it hits all the genre points you want for most of the genres, but it does it in 60 pages or less, and it's really easy to teach and learn. And it's also really easy to tweak. If you're experienced with role-playing games... Tiny Dungeon is like, it's like just a goldfield of options to adjust and tweak and play with and make it really your own and make it sing at your table the way you like to play games. The other option is it's great for folks who are less comfortable with role-playing games because the mechanics are so light, they can really engage with the story and that helps draw people into game gaming if they're not already there. Also, family gaming, folks who have younger kids is perfect for that. That's a good point. Again, the mechanics are easy enough that the average child would be able to identify if they passed a test without any sort of calculations and the like. So, okay. Uh, you mentioned people who are interested in gaming but might be uncomfortable with it, are unfamiliar with it, might not have access to it, might not have somebody that can teach them as most of us learn off of other people. On your YouTube channel, other than your current stream, the YouTube channel existed before that. Do you have any other examples of Tiny D6 roleplay, any, any Tiny Dungeons out there or anything like that for people to see? If you want to watch something totally off the rails, you can watch my tiny dungeon actual plays on Victory Condition Gaming. Fair warning, they get really off the rails. It just, it's like watching me spiral into just madness as the game goes on as I'm trying to keep up with the players and their shenanigans. And our Tiny Supers campaign almost went the same way, but I had learned my lesson. The Tiny Dungeons game is fairly lighthearted, you're saying? Yeah, I won't repeat what somebody said on air at one point, because I don't know, I don't know the rating on this channel. But it, I had to stop and like walk away for a minute because I was like, I don't know how to respond to that. I just have to leave the room. I'll be back. If it's seriously vulgar, I can cut it. But now I'm interested and want to know exactly what drove you out of the room. Yeah, punched the dragon in his nether regions. Ah. He was specific as to which nether region and where. I see. And two of our characters were a pair of minotaur brothers who were weightlifters named Brad and Chad. So okay. that tells you the kind of game I got stuck running out of nowhere. I see. And this was all being streamed, you said? Yeah. Was yep. it live? Yep, for 12 sessions. Did it come to a conclusion, or did you just have to throw in at one point? It ended, and there was an attempt at conclusion. I would, I don't I mean, it's up to somebody else to decide if it's good. Good it was a good conclusion, I think. There were mistakes I made. There were things I would do different. All right. Well, then, other than the Yukon Dark Tiny Cthulhu game, do you have any plans to do any sort of streaming or podcasting in the future? We're going to continue streaming stuff on our Gallant services. Okay, excellent. Then along with that, where else could listeners go if they wanted to find you or find out more about Gallant Knight? If you want to find me personally, I'm on Twitter at Alan Barr. If you want to find Gallant Night Games, you can find Gallant Night Games on Twitter at Gallant K Games. We have an official Gallant Night Games Facebook group, Facebook slash Gallant Night Games. You just search that. GallantNightGames.com is our website. Excellent. We'll definitely have a link to that in the show notes for our listeners. So 
Alan, with that, it's been great talking to you. I've really enjoyed having you on the show, and thank you so much for taking a little bit of your time to tell us about Tiny D6. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Alan, for paying us a short visit here at the Guild Hall to discuss the entirety of Tiny D6 and all of the many interesting little paths it provides roleplayers to explore. We believe all listeners should visit GallantNightGames.com and try the Tiny D6 version of your favorite genre. And if that game does not yet exist, you can rest assured Sir Alan and his Gallant Knights will design it eventually. Before we go, we at DDG Pod need to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. Additional music in this episode was provided by Alexander Nakarada. Logo design for our show was done by Elijah Nest. Special thanks this time to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast, Hodag RPG, and Ricolas Weishaupt for their help in completing this episode. And last, but certainly not least, thank you to all listeners. As a small favor, if you're enjoying the show, we would really appreciate it if you gave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. That concludes our ninth episode of Dungeon Designers Guild. So, all you small-scale starfarers and miniature mages, we escaped again. But remember, next time, we might not be so lucky.